The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In July 2009, Ben Novak Jr. was on top of the world. He was rich. He was successful. He also had no idea. He was about to die in one of the most gruesome ways imaginable. Join me now as we take a look into a tragedy inspired by jealousy and greed. You'll hear about a man who thought his money made him invincible and a wife who took her vows of till death do us part to a whole new twisted and sadistic level, stopping at nothing to make sure that if she couldn't have him, no one could. At the turn of the 20th century, Miami Beach was little more than a nine-mile-long barrier island covered in swamps, festering with mosquitoes, alligators, and snakes. But by the booming 1920s, word had spread among America's wealthier class that Miami Beach was where summer spends the winter. Or at least, that's what a billboard in Times Square proudly proclaimed. It soon became a favorite destination for President Warren G. Harding, as well as gangster Al Capone. By the 30s, roughly 50,000 tourists were visiting Miami Beach every year. And soon, dozens of Art Deco-styled hotels began popping up to accommodate them. Although tourism came to a sudden halt with the onset of World War II in the 40s, one ambitious businessman saw the opportunity of a lifetime. Ben Novak Sr. purchased five hotels in five years, filling them with U.S. Marines who had virtually taken over Miami Beach, preparing for the invasion of Normandy. By the war's end, Ben Sr. was a very wealthy and successful man, intricately involved in every detail of his hotels. Ben Sr.'s whole life and persona revolved entirely around his hotels and guests. Any movie featuring a charismatic and micromanaging hotel owner can trace its inspiration back to Ben Novak Sr., the man who came to define the very essence of the term, hotelier. And in 1954, there was no better place in the world for a hotelier to be than Miami Beach, which by that time was receiving more than 2 million tourists a year. In 1954, Ben Sr. built the Fountain Blue Hotel, a monument to luxury, elegance, and extravagance. The hotel immediately became the place to be for anybody who was anybody. Groucho Marx, Judy Garland, Gary Cooper, and Joan Crawford, the absolute most prominent stars of the day, were regulars. Frank Sinatra and the rest of the Rat Pack became steady fixtures, playing at the hotel's nightclub so often that Sinatra had a permanent penthouse suite always reserved for him. It's also the hotel where President JFK is rumored to have slept with Marilyn Monroe. Shortly after the hotel's opening, 
Ben Sr. and his wife Bernice welcomed the birth of their son Ben Novak Jr. in 1956. And it's safe to say, Ben Jr.'s childhood was quite unlike anyone else's. Despite being born into a life of privilege, he was almost entirely neglected by his father, who was too busy running the hottest hotel on earth. And although dearly loved by his mother, her very public role as Ben Sr.'s wife left Bernice with little to no time to attend to Ben Jr. either. Outside of school, Ben Jr. basically spent his entire childhood living within the walls of the Fountain Blue. From the time Ben Jr. could walk, he roamed the halls of the Fountain Blue like he owned the place. Because he pretty much did. Instead of playing with other kids his age, little Ben was surrounded by adults. Fountain Blue staff understood that if Ben Jr. wanted something, it was their job to give it to him. It's hard to imagine a more spoiled, pampered, and maladjusted child than Ben Jr. When he was just 13, Ben told the hotel's executive chef that he was fired for not getting him a bowl of ice cream on demand. When the chef told Ben Sr. about the incident, Sr.'s reply was, well, if he fired you, he fired you. Ben Jr., Sr., and Bernice lived like royalty, but the glory days of Miami Beach were quickly coming to an end. In 1968, Ben Sr. and Bernice had a bitter divorce that became a tabloid sensation. But the 70s would be even worse for Ben Sr. Las Vegas erupted in popularity. Cruise ships began stealing the sunshine business, while Disney World made Orlando the new place to vacation. In 1976, seeing that Ben Sr. was losing money hand over fist, his good friend Frank Sinatra offered to buy the hotel off him. But Ben Sr. took offense to the offer, and the two men erupted in a violent fistfight. One of the witnesses claimed they beat the living hell out of each other, with both men staggering around with black eyes, cuts, and bruises. Ben Sr. then kicked Sinatra out of his hotel for good, and Frank never sang another song inside the Fountain Blue ever again. By 1978, the hotel went into bankruptcy, and Ben Sr. was forced to sell. From that point on, Ben Sr. was a shell of his former self and was never able to fully financially recover from the loss. By the time he died of heart failure in 1985, Ben Sr. was only able to leave an inheritance of $2 million to Bernice and Ben Jr., a far cry from what the man had been worth barely a decade before. Despite Ben Jr.'s vast array of character flaws, which there were many, it turned out that the pampered and spoiled Ben Jr. had actually learned quite a lot from watching his father. At 22, the same year his father was forced to sell the Fountain Blue, Ben Jr. was hired by Amway, the largest multi-level marketing company in the world. His job? To organize its conventions across the country. And he was good at it. Real good. In the beginning, Ben was paid a modest salary of $45,000 a year, but he soon struck out on his own, founding his own organizing company, Convention Concepts Unlimited. It didn't take long for Ben to garner a reputation for being one of the most difficult people to work with and was known in the industry 
as the planner from hell. But that didn't matter, because what Ben lacked in pleasantries, he made up for in business smarts, his company soon grossing nearly 50 million each year. As an insufferable child and teenager, Ben had virtually no friends or girlfriends, with one notable exception, actor Kelsey Grammer, who became a lifelong friend during their time in prep school together. Ben's first sexual encounters were most likely the working girls who frequented his father's hotel. Ben's pension for mistresses and working girls would follow him for the rest of his life. Later on, as Ben grew older, he managed to have a series of relationships, although short-lived, including marrying a Vegas showgirl named Jill Campion. But the marriage barely lasted two years, and they divorced in 1981, as Ben continued to see other women on the side. Three years passed, and then one night in 1984, while hanging out with some friends at a gentleman's club, Ben met Sylvia, one of the dancers. Her real name was Narcia Sira Feliz Pacheco. Narcia, she was called by her friends, had noticed how much money Ben was throwing around at the other dancers, and it immediately caught her eye. When she found out who he was and who his father had been, she knew she needed to pursue him. Narcy was from Guayaquil, Ecuador, and immigrated to Florida when she was 23, with her husband, Angel Abad, and their two-year-old daughter, May. But a few years after arriving, Narcy and Angel began having difficulties in their marriage and eventually divorced. Left without financial support, Narcy sent her daughter to live with relatives as she tried stabilizing her life. That's when Narcy started dancing, quickly becoming known for her violent and volcanic temper. When Ben started dating Narcy, his friends were surprised. She wasn't his usual type. Instead of tall and slender, Narcy was short and curvaceous. Although noticeably rough around the edges, Ben's friends initially approved of Narcy, a woman who just seemed to know just how to take care of him. Ben's mother's opinion, on the other hand, wasn't as generous. From the moment Bernice laid eyes on Narcy, she despised her. But although Bernice thought Narcy was coarse and uneducated, she kept her feelings to herself, confiding only to her sister that if she wanted to continue seeing her son, she'd have to be nice to Narcy. In the beginning, Ben wanted virtually nothing to do with Narcy's daughter, May which seemed to suit Narcy just fine as well. And so as Ben and Narcy's lives became more entwined, young May continued living with her aunt in Naples, Florida. Although Ben and Narcy were from two completely different worlds, they managed to find commonalities early on, one being their preference for bondage, dominance, and submission in the bedroom. But Ben and Narcy weren't only compatible in the bedroom, they seemed to work well together as well. Narcy supported Ben's convention business and became an integral partner by attracting more Spanish-speaking clients. In exchange, she demanded absolute loyalty, and Ben soon learned what would happen if he crossed her. In 1984, Narcy discovered one of Ben's mistresses and threatened to burn down his house. Narcy wasn't opposed to going to extremes if it meant protecting her territory. Despite the women coming and going out of Ben's life, 
he decided to propose to Narcy after six tumultuous years together, and Narcy accepted, even converting to Judaism to please her soon-to-be mother-in-law. Around that time, Narcy also became a grandmother when her 16-year-old daughter May had a baby boy, followed by a second son just two years later. With the birth of her two grandchildren, Narcy, who had always kept May at an arm's length, slowly began to allow her daughter back into her life as she doted on the two boys. But May would forever harbor a deep hatred for her mother who'd abandoned her until it was convenient. On the day before their wedding, Ben surprised Narcy by making her sign a prenuptial agreement. It stated that if they divorced within 10 years, Narcy would get nothing. If a divorce came later, she'd only get $65,000 plus her moving expenses. If Ben died, his estate would go to his legal heirs, namely his mother. The document was specifically designed to prevent Narcy from profiting from his death in any way. Only a valid will could supersede the agreement. Although prenuptial agreements aren't uncommon among the wealthy, theirs would become ominously symbolic of the couple's strange and chaotic marriage. Ben needed Narcy, someone who would put up with his eccentric and often miserable personality, while also remaining eager to please him, both sexually and socially. And Narcy needed Ben, a man who could provide her with a life of luxury and leisure she never dreamt was possible. For the next 18 years, the couple's marriage was a turbulent balancing act between companionship, betrayal, violent codependency, and a mutual lust for money. They fought incessantly in private, often tearing apart the interior of their home. Neighbors recall seeing the pair chasing each other in their luxury cars up and down the quiet residential streets. The primary cause of their marital strife was Ben's mistresses. He usually kept at least three permanently set up in apartments around Fort Lauderdale, paying for their housing, expenses, and shopping sprees. And whenever Narcy caught wind of one of his new mistresses, well, she'd explode. But as angry and hurt as Narcy was, she never spoke a bad word about Ben to anyone. She was willing to deal with his infidelity privately at the risk of losing the lifestyle she'd grown so accustomed to. On the flip side, the very first time Ben discovered Narcy was cheating on him, he was devastated. It's entirely possible Ben legitimately lacked the emotional maturity to even recognize his absurd double standard. Whatever the case may be, around the couple's 10th anniversary, Ben decided he was done. He wanted a divorce, which meant he'd leave Narcy with a paltry $65,000. But Narcy wasn't having it. On the night of June 8th, 2002, three armed men burst into the Novak's bedroom while Ben and Narcy slept. As Ben sprung into action, reaching for his gun in the bedside table, Narcy warned the intruders by shouting out, Look out, he's got a gun in his nightstand. Before Ben could get his hand on the gun, the men had him handcuffed and blindfolded. For the next 25 hours, Ben was held captive at gunpoint while Narcy ransacked their home, collecting valuables and $370,000 in cash. 
Narcy even packed furniture into a truck, taking it to a warehouse. When she was done taking everything she wanted, Narcy removed Ben's blindfold and told him that if she couldn't have him, no one could. She then told him she could have had him killed at any time, and the only reason he wasn't dead already was because she'd stopped the three men from pulling the trigger. Narcy then walked out of the house, leaving Ben still handcuffed to a recliner. It wasn't until the maid showed up that Ben was finally freed and able to call police to report the incident. But Narcy was already one step ahead of him, down at the police station, filing a domestic violence injunction against him. She wanted him thrown out of their opulent home so she could live there herself. She told police Ben abused her regularly. On one occasion, she said he broke her nose and took her to a plastic surgeon to fix the damage she'd caused. But when Narcy woke up, she said although her nose had been fixed, she'd also been given bigger breast implants, something she said she never consented to. Next, Narcy dumped an accordion file filled with photos onto the officer's desk. The photos were pornographic images of young female amputees. Some were even Polaroids, suggesting Ben may have taken the pictures himself. When asked about the violent home invasion, Narcy flatly denied Ben's story. According to her, Ben had willingly been cuffed to a chair after she made him believe it was part of their usual sexual foreplay. It was the only way she said she could leave without him hurting her. Once Ben was secured, she simply packed up her belongings and left. From that point on, anyone who knew Ben urged him to get out of the marriage for good, concerned Narcy might actually kill him if he didn't. But Ben didn't heed their warnings. In a complete shock to everyone, including the police and lawyers, Ben and Narcy managed to patch things up somehow and announce they were staying together. The truth was, they were both terrified. Narcy was terrified of losing Ben's money and extravagant lifestyle, and Ben was terrified of Narcy's ability to ruin his reputation. Bernice, however, refused to forget the past. She was extremely distraught about everything and warned Ben to sleep with one eye open. She had no idea she should have also been fearing for her own life. In 2006, when Ben turned 50, he drafted up a will leaving his entire fortune to Narcy, over $7 million. But there was one condition. If Bernice happened to outlive Ben, then Bernice, not Narcy, would inherit everything. Narcy would only receive $200,000, as well as half of their house. Over the years after Ben Sr.'s death, Bernice and Ben had grown exceedingly close, much closer than they'd been since his childhood. Although she was now in her 80s, Bernice worked at Ben's Conventions Unlimited office six days a week, and her boy, who in many ways had never grown up, became dependent on Bernice for support. Without any regard for his mother's age or health, Ben frequently woke her up in the middle of the night with phone calls, begging her to drive over and play referee between one of his and Narcy's many arguments. In 2008, Ben met Rebecca Bliss, a 40-year-old heavily tattooed escort who charged $300 an hour. In the beginning, the relationship was strictly sexual, 
but before long, they were communicating every day, getting together whenever they could. Unlike Narcy, who angered easily, Rebecca was easygoing, cheerful, and made Ben laugh. 52-year-old Ben was falling in love. After three months, Ben invited Rebecca to move to Fort Lauderdale, secretly setting her up in a lavish apartment, paying all of her expenses. Whatever she wanted, she bought and sent Ben the bill. He told Rebecca to be patient, that he was preparing to divorce Narcy and wanted to marry her instead. But Ben's plan was expedited when Narcy found a receipt for furniture. Furniture Ben had bought for Rebecca's apartment. Naturally, Narcy went ballistic, but this time, instead of trying to work things out and appease Narcy, Ben told her he wanted a divorce. Once and for all, he was leaving her for Rebecca. For the second time in her life, faced with the prospect of losing everything, Narcy was not going down without a fight. Usually when couples are getting a divorce, they retain lawyers, not Narcy. Instead, she called the FBI, claiming Ben had been using his entire convention business to cover up an illegal immigration scheme. The way it worked, according to Narcy, was that Ben paid women to marry his foreign clients to get them green cards. She also specifically brought their attention to Rebecca Bliss, claiming she was next in line to marry one of Ben's clients. When that didn't work, she told the FBI Ben was shipping cocaine to Mexico using his private plane. With the feds still not buying any of her stories, Narcy decided to take a more direct approach. That's when she called Rebecca, offering to pay her $10,000, never to see Ben again. But Rebecca refused, and Narcy hung up on her, only to call her right back again, this time screaming. She'd never allow Ben to divorce her. She then repeated the same threat she'd once made to Ben. If I can't have him, no one can. If Ben left Narcy for Rebecca, everything would be gone. The luxurious home, first-class travel, unlimited access to Ben's fortune. She wasn't about to let some young mistress swoop in and take that all away from her. That's when Narcy decided to call her older brother Cristobal. Together, the siblings brainstormed ways for Narcy to get all of Ben's money. In the end, they decided the only way was to murder Ben before he could divorce her. But there was still one major problem, Bernice. Because of Ben's will, Bernice would have to die first in order for their plan to work. In February 2009, Cristobal hired two men to make a hit on Ben's mom, but both gave up after Bernice's neighbors saw them snooping outside her house. But Cristobal wasn't about to let his sister down and kept searching for someone who might actually follow through with the job. That's when he met Alejandro Garcia, a crack addict with a lengthy rap sheet who happened to be living on the streets. He agreed to do the job for $1,000. Together, the two men staked out Bernice's home, her hair salon, and even her favorite mall. But no matter where they searched for her, they couldn't seem to find her. As the men went about trying to track Bernice down, Narcy stayed in touch with Cristobal the entire time using a burner phone, recommending various places her mother-in-law might be. 
The terrible plan finally succeeded on April 4, 2009. At 9.25 p.m., Bernice came out of her home to move her car from the driveway to the garage. Alejandro, who'd been hiding in the bushes, followed the car inside. When Bernice got out of her vehicle, Alejandro ambushed her as he began hitting her in the face with a monkey wrench. As Bernice fell to the floor in a pool of blood, Alejandro fled the scene. Despite a fractured skull and broken jaw, miraculously, Bernice managed to make her way out of the garage and into the house. With the garage door still open, Bernice locked herself inside the laundry room, possibly fearing her attacker would return, but he didn't. Hours later, neighbors became concerned when they spotted Bernice's garage door open and the light still on inside. That's when they called Ben, who immediately came over. As he made his way through the house, following the trail of blood, he finally found his mother. She'd collapsed and died in the laundry room before she could call for help. Although Bernice's blood was everywhere in the house, the coroner determined her death had been an accident. The frail, elderly woman had recently suffered a bad fall, tripping over a sidewalk, and it was believed she'd simply fallen again while she was getting out of her car, later dying from her injuries. At the memorial service, mourners were shocked at Narcy's behavior. Instead of grieving like everyone else, she was smiling and laughing, seating everyone like she was working at one of their conventions. She even dyed her blonde hair bright red, the same color her mother-in-law's hair had been. While it was at the very least bizarre, Bernice's family were appalled. When Ben went to the bank to claim his mother's safe deposit box, Narcy eagerly accompanied him. As she helped him move everything, she paid particular attention to the jewelry, including a diamond necklace that had been given to Bernice by Frank Sinatra. As Narcy eyed everything, she knew it would be all hers soon, including the $2 million Ben had received from his mother's will. Although he didn't appear to suspect his wife's involvement in his mother's death, Ben doubted it had been an accident like the coroner ruled. He even hired a private detective to review the police reports and agreed Bernice's death was suspicious. All the PI needed to dig further was the go-ahead from Ben. But Ben would never get that chance. With the first part of their plan executed, Narcy and Cristobal were ready for the second part. They decided the best idea would be to have Ben killed outside of Florida, believing they'd have a better chance of getting away with it in another jurisdiction. In July, Ben and Narcy were scheduled to host an Amway convention in Rybrook, New York. It seemed like the perfect opportunity, and because Alejandro had been successful with the hit on Bernice, Cristobal decided to contact him again. This time, he said, he wanted Ben beaten up and both of his eyes cut out so Narcy could take over the company. Alejandro agreed and recruited a friend named Joel Gonzalez to help him this time. 
Bernice he could handle on his own. He anticipated Ben might need a little more wrangling. To ensure there were no mistakes, Cristobal took Alejandro and Joel to a restaurant where Ben and Narcy were having dinner so they could see what Ben looked like. Unaware his days were numbered, Ben and Narcy flew to New York for the convention, followed by Cristobal and the two hitmen. For the next two days, the killers carefully scouted out the hotel, paying close attention to the exits, while Ben met with the conference organizers. On the morning of July 12, 2009, Ben finally went to bed around 6.30 a.m. after pulling an all-nighter working on his laptop. After his head hit the pillow, he immediately fell into a deep sleep. Nine minutes later, Narcy quietly slipped out of bed and called Cristobal using her burner phone. It was go time. Twenty minutes later, Alejandro and Joel entered the hotel from the side door and went to the Novak suite where Narcy was waiting, holding the door open. As Ben lay fast asleep, the two men attacked him and began beating him with dumbbells. Although Ben attempted to fight back, he was quickly overpowered. As they continued bashing Ben, Joel suddenly lost his nerve and left the bedroom, but Narcy ordered him to come back and help passing him a pillow to muffle her husband's screams. Once Ben finally stopped fighting back, the men used duct tape to bind him. Alejandro then took out a knife and plunged it into each one of Ben's eye sockets. After everything Ben had endured, he was still alive, but he wouldn't be for long, because Narcy ordered them to finish him off. Alejandro then wrapped Ben's head so tightly with duct tape that he choked on his own vomit. As Ben lay bloody and lifeless on the carpet, Narcy passed the killers each a towel so they could clean themselves up. She also removed a gold bracelet from her husband's body and gave it to Alejandro so that the attack would look like a robbery. In their original plan, Alejandro and Joel were supposed to bind Narcy up with duct tape too, making it look like she'd been a victim of the robbery as well. Instead, she decided on another approach. Narcy raced downstairs at 7.10 a.m. while hundreds of convention goers lined up to get breakfast. She deliberately stood where she'd be seen by the security cameras, offering to help her employees out with the food service. After leaving the hotel, Alejandro called Cristobal to confirm the job was done and to collect their money, $10,000. Around 7.45 a.m., Narcy went back up to the room, prepared to put on the performance of a lifetime. Throughout the hotel, guests could hear Narcy screaming something had happened to her husband. By the time police arrived on the scene, Narcy had calmed down. She said she'd left the room at 7 a.m., and returned 40 minutes later to find her husband dead. However, her daughter May, who'd also been working at the convention, told detectives a different story. According to May, Narcy hadn't come downstairs until 7.20, a contradiction that led police to suspect Narcy might somehow be involved with her husband's murder. After checking the suite's door lock codes, investigators discovered 
that whoever had killed Ben hadn't entered the room using a key card, meaning someone must have let them in. After police received a tip from Florida about a 2002 home invasion at the Novak residence, their suspicions grew even further in Narcy's direction. The following day, investigator Edward Murphy and Detective Allison Carpentier interviewed Narcy at Westchester County Police Headquarters. Narcy agreed to do a polygraph test, but failed it five times. When May learned about the test results, she became enraged with her mother. In fact, she was so angry with Narcy, detectives had to hold her back from attacking her. But the damning polygraph results still didn't give detectives enough evidence to arrest her. After Narcy flew back to Fort Lauderdale, she immediately set to work visiting all the banks Ben had safe deposit boxes and accounts removing as much cash as fast as she could. In her eyes, she earned Ben's fortune and wasn't going to wait until the dust settled to claim it. Her daughter May was now in a very interesting position. Due to Florida's Slayer statute, a murderer cannot receive any benefits from a will of the victim. So if Narcy was convicted of murdering Ben, that would leave May next in line to receive it. More specifically, the fortune would actually be given to May's two sons. You can see why protecting Ben's estate from Narcy's clutches would suddenly become May's main priority. Although May managed to convince a judge to freeze her stepfather's assets while the murder was being investigated, Narcy ignored the order and liquidated as many assets as possible. In the months that followed, Ben's murder became a tabloid sensation as May publicly accused her mother of killing him. What May didn't realize was that at the same time she was accusing her mother, her uncle Cristobal was telling police it was actually May who had masterminded the murders of both Bernice and Ben. Determined to frame her, Cristobal hired Alejandro again to do his dirty work. The plan was for Alejandro to plant guns and drugs in May's truck, but when the plan failed, Narcy's other brother, Carlos, offered him $3,000 to beat her up. Fortunately for May, the police moved in before it could happen. The big break in the case came on August 31st, when Cristobal tried to throw suspicion off Narcy by throwing Alejandro under the bus. Calling New York detectives, Cristobal said he overheard someone identifying Ben's killer as Alejandro Garcia. After hanging up, Cristobal then attempted to have Alejandro killed to prevent him from talking. Thankfully, police found Alejandro before Cristobal's hitman, and Alejandro was arrested on November 18th in Miami. At first, Alejandro denied everything, but eventually agreed to cooperate when they charged him with murder. He told detectives Cristobal and Narcy were the real masterminds behind Bernice and Ben's murders. In the early morning hours of July 8, 2010, almost a year after Ben's murder, the FBI finally descended on Narcy's home, busting down the door and placing her under arrest. Later that afternoon, her brother Cristobal was also arrested. After learning he was wanted, 
Joel Gonzalez gave himself up at Miami Police Headquarters, backing up Alejandro's story. Even in jail, Narcy continued trying to pin the murders on her daughter, May. And if you think Cristobal was done scheming, well, he wasn't. He offered Joe Gonzalez $150,000 to tell police May was behind everything. What Cristobal didn't realize was that Joel had already made a deal with prosecutors and reported their conversation and the $150,000 offer. All Cristobal did in the end was make the case against him and his sister even worse. After months of legal wrangling, the trial of Narcy Novak and Cristobal Valise began on April 23, 2012. Cristobal wore civilian clothes in court, while Narcy insisted on wearing prison scrubs, saying it showed how her enemies had taken everything from her, even her clothing. Testimony against Narcy and Cristobal was overwhelming, and when the trial ended in June of 2012, the jury found both Narcy and Cristobal guilty of both murders. The following December, as the judge sentenced each of the siblings to life in prison, he made it clear the punishment was justified. He called Narcy a coward and said her greed and selfishness had killed two innocent people. To this day, Cristobal swears it was made behind everything. In the aftermath, other members of Ben and Bernice's family have contested the will, perhaps understandably, attempting to keep anyone in Narcy's family from benefiting from the murders. But after a drawn-out legal battle, the fortune was given to May and her two adult sons. The Novak fortune isn't just a story of love, murder, and betrayal. It's an epic saga beginning with one man's dream of building an empire on the pristine beaches of paradise. It's a tale of unbridled success, glitz, glamour, and ruin, followed by Ben Jr.'s ability to pick up the crumbling pieces and build up a new fortune of his own. But at what cost? Narcy and Ben's entire relationship was a ticking time bomb based on mutually assured destruction and it was always just a matter of time before the bomb went off. Clinical psychologist Dr. Christina Frazzani gives some background information on how some relationships become volatile. Some relationships are toxic, especially when two people feed off of one another and create their own living, breathing dynamic. The relationship becomes more than just the two people. It becomes an energy, kind of a way of interacting, and a pattern of unhealthy behavior. Looking at relationships from an attachment perspective can really help shed light on how the relationship becomes its own entity. There are two primary categories of attachment, secure and insecure. About 50% of the population, at least in research studies, is actually securely attached, which is great news. They feel comfortable getting close to others, sharing their hopes and dreams and fears and supporting one another in a relationship. And they don't become very jealous if their partner has interests or close friendships outside of the relationship. Insecure attachment, however, can generally be seen as two types. There are other subtypes, but simply put, anxious and avoidant. People with anxious attachment grow up so worried that others will leave them that they reach out constantly to their partner for reassurance and connection. 
People with avoidant attachment learn that others will usually leave them. So they develop a defense by choosing anxious partners, but avoiding a secure connection with them. This feeds the anxiety of the anxious partner, who then becomes anxious more and more, and the avoidant partner moves away and away every time the anxious partner reaches out for reassurance. It's really a vicious cycle. Avoidant partners might cheat on their anxious partners to avoid having to feel committed, and that leads the anxious partner to then become frustrated and feel abandoned, scared, and even angry. Dr. Frizzani now explains how a toxic relationship, which could involve an intense anxious avoidant pattern, could develop between people who struggle with certain personality characteristics. People who murder for money or revenge, crimes of passion, so to speak, could be reacting to human impulses that got out of hand, and they don't have the coping skills to handle the feelings or reduce the impulses. A person who commits a serious crime, like domestic violence, theft, or even murder against a loved one, might be in a toxic relationship with this type of vicious cycle. These types of crimes might be exacerbated by cheating, money, greed, constant arguing about these topics. I can only speculate and make generalizations because there really isn't a lot of information available to the public about many criminals' actual mental health, unless it's at the forefront of a crime coverage. In Narcy Novak's case and in her marriage, there's little to no information about actual mental health. I would guess, however, that someone who commits such a crime has some difficult personality characteristics that lead to unhealthy relationship dynamics. All humans have traits of personality disorders because we all have a personality and disorders are just lists of characteristics that turn dysfunctional. Some people are more tolerant and patient. Some people take things more personally. Some people need a lot of order in their lives. It just depends on the person. Furthermore, these traits are really affected by both nature and nurture. So we would have to look into the childhood patterns and adult patterns of both Narcy and her husband. Having an actual personality disorder, however, literally means a lack of order, a set of personality traits that go together and so extreme that the person's life is really impacted in so many ways. A person's marriage, employment, finances, relationships, everything starts to fall apart. So these cluster B personality disorders have to do with interpersonal relationships. And that's why I want to bring this up in this case, because, again, these are four personality disorders that are extreme sets of traits that really impact the way that somebody interacts with others, especially in their primary attachment relationship. So the first one is antisocial personality disorder, and this would be someone who doesn't understand why they have to follow laws and they don't feel remorse. So if they harm someone physically or emotionally or they steal from a loved one, it really doesn't impact them. They don't feel a lot of compassion. Borderline personality disorder, which is statistically more common in women, and while antisocial is statistically more common in men, involves having trouble with emotional regulation, dissociative feelings, and impulsivity. People with borderline often harm themselves through cutting and other self-destructive behaviors in an effort to get out those desperate feelings inside of them and try to get a loved one, especially in a, a relationship, a romantic relationship, 
to understand the emotional pain that they're feeling. People with histrionic personality disorder have this extreme need for attention. They struggle with very unstable emotions, for example, vacillating from crying to laughing in the same conversations, and they're sensitive and gullible and even reckless. So you can see how this would really tie into a volatile marriage. The last one is narcissistic personality disorder, which is really better understood in recent years than it used to be, but now it's often mentioned too flippantly and misunderstood. People with narcissistic personality disorder are in fact arrogant and demand admiration. But the reason for this is this profound lack of self-esteem. So there's no way to know which of these personality disorders could be interacting in this case, but I just wanted to mention the attachment issues and the relationship dynamics and how some of these personality disorders or personality traits could really play into this relationship. You can see how these sets of characteristics could lead to greed, jealousy, impulsive harm to others. If a husband or wife both have several of these characteristics, they could really feed off of each other, which would lead not just to insecure attachment, but to extreme feelings like rage. Ben needed Narcy, and Narcy needed Ben. Even Ben's closest friends believed that either Ben or Narcy would wind up murdered one day. As one friend put it, when you sleep with rattlesnakes, you're going to get bit. I'd like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Jordan Z, Janine S, Rebecca F, Douglas H, Diana B, Callie M, Emily R, Sydney D, Allison L, Caroline K, Paris D, Jenny C, and Sandra D. And now I'd like to introduce you to the podcast, Women and Crime. Women in Crime podcast is where true crime meets criminology. I'm Amy Sloshberg. And I'm Megan Sachs. My co-host and I are both criminologists and have spent our entire career studying and teaching about crime. We both have firsthand experience working with offenders and professionals in the criminal justice system. Each episode, you'll hear a new female-focused case or topic deconstructed by experts. We'll cover cases involving females as offenders and as victims, but more often than not, these two are one in the same. We also highlight the heroines of our criminal justice system, such as Kathleen Zellner, Sheila Wasaki, and Barbara Ray Venter, and interview subjects of famous cases including Denise Huskins and Lorena Bobbitt. You'll hear the stories of these women paired with the science that tells you where it all began. Crime is different for women. Listen and learn why on Women in Crime. You can listen to Women in Crime now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's Women A-N-D Crime. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search 
The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E.